Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is uh, May the 31st, 2022. News, of course, is still dominated by Ukraine, but there is also much news to the east of Ukraine, um, South China Sea. We've talked about it a lot in the past in the show. Uh, one headline today is about China sending 30 warplanes into the Taiwanese air defense zone. That's according to the BBC. Much of this might indeed be a response to Joe Biden, who last week said that the U.S. would respond militarily if China attacked Taiwan, while the White House insisted there hadn't been any policy change. A lot of ambivalence and nervousness about this. The L.A. Times, for example, suggesting to Biden that uh, deterring China on Taiwan requires Biden to reassure rather than to uh, promise some sort of military response. We've talked about this in many ways uh, in the past, we had a show last month with C. Fred uh, Bergstrom, why Trump and Biden are both dangerously wrong about China. Bergstrom, I think, is to some extent a dove on China. He has a new book out, uh, The United States versus China. It was interestingly reviewed by Martin Wolf in the, in the Financial Times um, in association with another book on China with a very different argument. Getting China Wrong by my guest today, Aaron <coughs> Friedberg. Um, Aaron uh, is joining us. Uh, and Aaron, to kick off, um, I thought we might begin with some remarks from Fred about your book. You're in very different camps when it comes to China. But at the end of my conversation with Fred Bergstrom, he recommended reading your book. So let's have a look at that. And then we'll come back to talking about your book and Fred and what indeed we need, we need to do about China. So hold tight. Here's a, a clip from Fred. We'll be reading Fred in these uncertain times in April 2022, in, in addition to your uh, United States versus China. Well, you mentioned the Aaron Friedberg book, uh, uh, Getting China Wrong. Uh, I think I think it uh, presents the other side of the case in a fair and objective way. Uh, Martin Wolf in the Financial Times. Yeah, I, I read Martin. Martin's been on the the show, and actually, Martin uh, compared and contrasted your. Yeah, he reviewed my book and, and Friedberg's together. Uh, he preferred mine, but said he was afraid Friedberg's might. Well, Martin better. is like you. He is a, a the ultimate liberal free trader, so that's not surprising. Yeah, yeah we'll have to get Fred, you and uh, and Friedberg on the show. It'll be an interesting conversation. Um, Aaron, to what extent do you think your new book, uh, Getting China Wrong, and Fred's book, The United States versus China, uh, should they be read in parallel? Are they making quite different arguments? Well, I should say I haven't read uh, Bergson's book yet, but I have it on my shelf and I intend to read it. And uh, I, I should take the opportunity to thank him for recommending mine. Um, from what I understand of what he's written over the years and what I know about this book, yes, we do take very different views about how we should deal with China going forward and also different views, I think, about 
how we've gotten to be in the position that we are now. Bergstrom, and again, I don't want to put, and this is not a conversation, obviously, about his book, but his United States versus China seems to suggest that um, China and the U.S. share common liberal economic international system, and that should be the focus. You don't seem to be making that argument in getting China wrong, do you, Aaron? No, uh, and I think the belief uh, that China's approach to economics, to international economics, its attitudes towards the workings of the international economic system, the belief that that was somehow going to converge with our views and our policies was a mistake. Who is most responsible, Aaron, do you think, for getting China wrong? Uh, many U.S. presidents have, if not bet their presidency, certainly bet quite a lot of political capital from Richard Nixon onwards on getting China right. Who has got China most wrong over the last 25 years? Well, the list is long, and as you suggested, includes uh, a series of American presidents, both Republicans and Democrats. Uh, I think it also includes a significant fraction of the academic China-watching community, former government officials, uh, and, and so on. Uh, I think there was a very widely held view about the likely results of engagement, and particularly economic engagement with China, which was simply has proven to be wrong. I don't take the view that attempting uh, the policy as we did was a, was a blunder. I think it was a gamble, but it was a gamble that didn't pay off. And a lot of people were too slow, I think, to recognize that fact. 2020, of course, in retrospect, is always very easy. China has changed over the last 20 to 25 years. Has your thinking changed? Uh, tell me about how you've approached China and why you're in a different camp from the majority of liberal internationalists within American academia. I've been concerned about the implications of the growth of China's power since the 1990s. I wrote an article in 2000 called The Struggle for Mastery in Asia, which predicted that there would be an intensifying rivalry between the U.S. and China over the coming two decades, actually. Uh, I think, uh, in part, my view or my concern was rooted in some of the traditional dynamics of great power politics. You have a rising power uh, that's growing rapidly and uh, a power that's been dominant for a long time. Historically, that's been a, a formula for tension, if not always for conflict. And so the rapid growth of China's power was part of what's driving this. But I think increasingly, I've come to focus on the nature of the Chinese regime and the ideology and the attitudes of its Chinese Communist Party leaders, because I think those are largely responsible for the policies that China is now pursuing, which appear increasingly threatening to the United States and also to other advanced industrial democracies. So it's a political thing, Aaron. Of course, as you suggest, China is a rising power. No one would disagree with that. You and Bergstrom are in this, and you couldn't argue against that. And given the nature of international relations theories, rising powers always challenge the dominant power. The dominant power is the United States. But are you suggesting then that there's something different about what we might call the, the Leninist principles at the heart of the Xi regime, which many people didn't think would reappear uh, back in the 90s? Yes. And in fact, I think that's the key. That's the thing that people got most wrong about China or the aspect of, uh, of China's system that people underestimated 
And that is that it was and continues to be a Leninist system, uh, meaning that it's governed by people who are absolutely committed to preserving the monopoly of domestic political power of a single political party. And the essence of the argument in favor of engagement, at least in part, was that over time, the regime would soften and it would eventually liberalize. Uh, and even though it would, in the process, uh, grow richer and more powerful, it wouldn't be a threat because it would become more like us in terms of its political system and its economic system. And that just underestimated the resilience and the resolve and the ruthlessness of China's Communist Party rulers. Aaron, we've had a lot of discussions on authoritarianism, neo-authoritarianism, perhaps even neo-totalitarianism on the show from Moises Naim, many other thinkers. Um, to what extent can, shall we call, Putin's gangster-like authoritarianism, can that be compared and contrasted with Xi's more conventional, classic Leninism? I think it is different. It has some of the same troubling implications, but really, in the long run, China is a much bigger challenge, much bigger threat. Russia's behavior, of course, especially recently, has been very aggressive and very dangerous, but it's playing quite a weak hand, and I think its power is going to continue to dwindle, and in fact, it's going to decline even more rapidly because of the after effects of this, of this conflict. Whereas China has many problems, but it's likely to continue to grow stronger. Uh, and it's also been more cautious, at least until fairly recently, and more patient in part because it thought time was on its side. So I think uh, the CCP regime, the Chinese Communist Party regime, is a much more uh, resilient and uh, highly institutionalized uh, system of governments. From what we can tell about Putin's Russia, it's basically Putin and a few uh, people around him who do what he says, but it's not a very strong political system. If Putin were to be removed tomorrow, we don't have any clue as to what would emerge. Whereas I think if Xi Jinping were to go tomorrow, we'd have somebody who wouldn't be that much different from him. Whatever one thinks or says about Lenin, I think it's hard to argue that Lenin was a nationalist. Surely there's a difference between the Leninism peddled by V.I. Lenin and he was, I mean, he obviously died early, so it's hard to tell really what what his vision was of, of a global communist domination. But, but calling Xi a Leninist, isn't that problematic in terms of taking over the world? It may be true in terms of his strangulation of democracy and independent voices. But it doesn't suggest that, I mean, even if, even if Xi is a Leninist, whatever that means, doesn't mean he wants to take over the world. It shouldn't necessarily impact on American policy towards China, should it? No, I, I think I would differ with you on the characterization of Lenin. I think uh, Lenin was a Russian, obviously, but he was a, a revolutionary who believed in a global international communist revolution. And when I use the term Leninism, I really mean to refer to uh, the system of what they refer to as democratic centralism, basically a, a centralized dictatorship that has the ability and believes it has the right to reach down into society and the economy and control everything that goes on uh, inside a country. But Lenin was using that system first to take power in Russia and then to try to foment a global revolution. 
I think Xi Jinping is a Leninist in that sense of uh, wanting to keep the rigid grip on political power in China. But I think he is very clearly a nationalist. I don't really think that he's a Marxist in the sense that previous generations of Chinese leaders might have been. I don't think he sees his goal as being creating a Marxist heaven on earth of, of communist society. I think his goal is to enhance the power of China, the Chinese nation, and he's using Leninist means in order to do that. So why should that bother the United States when it comes to policy? Um, he's clearly not bent on conquering the world, perhaps Taiwan, which is a special case. Um, why should that impact American policy towards China? Why, why does that mean that we've got China wrong? Can't we do business with them and hold our nose at the same time? That seems to be, for the most part, the history of um, foreign policy in, 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 in the 20th century in America anyway. I don't think so. I think it's gotten to the point where that's not sufficient. You ask why, uh, what's the problem? Uh, and I would say it's, it's at least three things, or it falls into three different categories. First, as far as China's external foreign policy objectives are concerned, it's become increasingly clear that China seeks to establish itself as the preponderant power in Eastern Eurasia and displace the United States. And that means uh, to become dominant over a number of democracies that happen to be allies of the United States. Uh, so that's a problem. And well, Aaron, think, let, let me call you on that. When you say mm -hmm. dominant, are you suggesting that China wants to invade Japan or Thailand or Singapore? No, I don't think they do. And I don't think they believe they would have to. However, the only reason why they aren't able simply to dictate to those around them is because the United States uh, continues to play a significant role and backs up its allies. But from the Chinese perspective, the United States is an outsider. It's an interloper. We sort of showed up in East Asia, mostly at the end of the Second World War. And once we're gone, from their point of view, China is the natural dominant power in the region. Would the liberal internationalists, would the, Bergs, the Bergstons of the world, would they necessarily disagree with you on that? I don't know whether they would or not. You'd have to ask them. But I think what they've advocated and the policies that they've favored assumed that this threat would diminish over time because China would be transformed into a country that more closely resembled our own. Uh, and that has not happened. So now we have a rich and powerful China governed by this regime that has expansionist or aggressive external in, uh, intentions. It's also pursuing economic policies, which I think we're increasingly recognizing have done damage to our economy and the economy of other advanced industrial societies. It's not just in the United States that people are concerned about subsidies and theft of intellectual property and so on. It's also in Europe and Japan and, and Korea. So just doing business uh, as we've been doing it is no longer adequate. And finally, uh, the CCP regime uh, is is a brutal one and represses its own people. That's problematic, I think, uh, for people in democracies, and it should be. But it goes beyond that now, because as they've grown stronger and more confident, they've also tried to reach out into the societies of democratic countries to try to influence political debate, and in particular, to suppress criticism of China. China is now imposing very 
uh, uh, strict sanctions, economic sanctions on Australia. And the reason for that is that in recent years, uh, the Australian government has become more concerned about Chinese political influence operations. And then at the time of the outbreak of the COVID pandemic, the Australian government had the temerity to call for an independent investigation of the causes of the pandemic. And the CCP regime has responded by imposing these sanctions on them to punish them. And there are many other examples in which they've targeted other governments and also uh, individual companies. So uh, I, I'm afraid that the, the unpleasant things about the CCP regime don't stay within its borders, especially as its wealth and power have grown. What's your position on Trump's position on, on China? Was he mostly right or wrong, do you think? Well, I think um, Trump had uh, the advantage, if you, if you like, of being oblivious to conventional wisdom and being willing to say and do things that his predecessors had, had not been willing to say or do. And much of that was very damaging. Uh, and even even dangerous. But in one sense, it helped to accelerate a shift in opinion in this country regarding China. Uh, and I think Trump, in retrospect, perhaps deserves a little bit of credit for that. But he really was just accelerating something that was already beginning to happen in the US. Uh, moreover, I think the good things that were done during the Trump administration regarding China were, for the most part, done by people lower down in his administration, not by Trump himself. Trump's uh, contributions to China policy were almost entirely negative, with the exception of calling attention to this threat. And now we see, as the Biden administration has come in, uh, they really haven't backed off either from most of the policies that Trump was pursuing, at least directly towards China, or from the characterization of China as a growing challenge. So there's been a process of waking up in this country that's still underway, uh, and it's happening in other democratic societies as well. Is, was Trump right, though, on this zero-sum argument about China and the United States, that one always has to win? Is that your argument as well, which is, of course, the reverse of the liberal internationalists? No, it's, it's not my view. Uh, I think it's the CCP's view of international politics and international economics, I think they see all of that as part of a larger struggle for power in which someone has to win and someone will lose and someone has to be at the top of the international system and everybody else will have to uh, accept its dictates. In their view, that dominant power has been us for the last 30 or 40 years, certainly since the end of the Cold War. And in the long run, I think they hope that it will be them and that's what they're working towards. But no, I don't think it has to be that way. Uh, the whole idea of liberal economics is the belief that economic relations are non-zero sum, they're positive sum, and everybody can benefit. Unfortunately, uh, the CCP uh, is not filled with liberals. There are people- Well, I don't are, think anyone would argue that. Well, there are people who have a very different view of the role of trade and economics and the purpose of economic activity than we do. Uh, and we've, uh, convinced ourselves for a time that that was not so, and we're beginning to recognize the, the consequences of that. From their point of view, the purpose of economic activity, domestic and international, is not to generate wealth for its own sake, but to enhance power 
to enhance the power of the party. And that's the Leninist element, this fetishization of power, which Lenin... Exactly. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, What about getting China wrong in terms of domestic dissidents, resistance to the Communist Party? Ever since Tiananmen Square, it seems as if, again, progressives, I think, for the most part, have believed that there would be resistance. What's your reading, Aaron, of the element of resistance within China to this regime? Unfortunately, uh, since Tiananmen, and even more, I would say, in the last 15 years or so, uh, the regime has tightened its grip, uh, made sure that there would never be another occasion when there would be thousands of students marching through the streets of major cities carrying statues that look like the Statue of Liberty. Uh, They've tightened their grip on dissent. That was true before. It's become even more true under Xi Jinping to the point where, uh, whereas in the past, there might occasionally have been scholars or uh, officials who might have expressed some mild criticism of what the regime was doing. There's none of that now. Uh, All dissent, as far as we can see, has been stifled. Uh, And moreover, it's not just a question of picking on individual dissidents. Uh, the regime is also using brutal methods to suppress what it sees as a potential threat of Islamist uh, terrorism, so it claims, in Xinjiang, in the western part of China. So it's established concentration camps, has at least a million people uh, interred in them. Uh, This is a regime now which is more repressive, I think, than at any time since the Cultural Revolution. Aaron, we've done a number of shows on the social credit system, did one with the German journalist Kai Strittmatters, written a book about this. It's the 21st century version of Orwell's 1984 camera, ubiquitous cameras, where everyone is being watched and people are rewarded for their political loyalty and punished when they're not loyal. Um, It's a familiar narrative which people like Strittmatter have embraced. Is it true? Is social credit the core piece of the digital totalitarian system that's being imposed by Xi in China today? From what I can tell, it's not necessarily true in the sense that it's already been implemented, but I have no doubt that that's the ambition and desire of the regime to use technology to really monitor the activities, the transactions, the movement Uh, of virtually every man, woman, and child in China. Now, that would have been impossible, something that the totalitarians of the 20th century might have dreamed of. You mentioned Orwell, uh, but simply was impossible with previous technologies, but could conceivably be possible or something approximating it uh, with 21st 21st century digital technology. And the regime is definitely interested in that and trying to build towards it. They are also interested in developing algorithms which would allow them to predict people who might commit offenses against the regime even before they have the opportunity to do so. Uh, And that really is nightmarish. The goal of totalitarians, the the definition almost of totalitarianism, is a a system that seeks to control everything down even to the thoughts of individuals. And I think the CCP regime is moving closer and closer to that standard. Whether it'll be able to achieve it or not, I I don't know. I tend to think in the long run, 
that people will find ways of resisting that and maybe even rebelling against it. But for right now, that would be an extraordinarily dangerous thing to do. Aaron, is there a, a new Cold War, a real Cold War between China and the United States, Chinese behavior in Africa in particular, massive, massive overseas? Is the new global rivalry not between some minor thug like Putin uh, and the West, but between uh, an authoritarian, technocratic, relatively efficient and prosperous Chinese model and Western democratic systems, which seem, if not in crisis, certainly in decay? I certainly think so. Let me put it to you this way. From the CCP's perspective, there has been a Cold War underway between China and the United States and the West more generally since the end of the last Cold War. That's the way they've seen it. Uh, what's happened, I think, or started to happen in the last five or 10 years is that the United States and some others in the West have begun to view the relationship in a similar fashion. So if that's a Cold War, I mean, it has to have two sides. Uh, I think that's essentially what we have. The use of that language, unfortunately, it, you get wrapped up in debates about what's similar and what's different. And of course, it's different in many ways. But if it is, as you defined it, uh, a rivalry that extends across all domains, uh, including the ideological, military, technological, diplomatic, political, uh, between two major powers that are trying to sort of build blocks around themselves, that's what we've got. Maybe someone will come up with a clever new term to describe it, but for the moment, at least, Cold War is a pretty good label. And the China model for elites in the developing world or however else you describe the non-Western world these days, the China model is not unattractive. It works, it's effective. It creates a degree of political stability and even prosperity, doesn't it, Aaron? Well, you're right. I think it is appealing, particularly to elites. And that's the essence of the Chinese strategy for extending uh, China's influence into the developing world. It isn't so much winning the hearts and minds of ordinary people. It's uh, attracting and in some cases uh, bribing and pressuring uh, elites so that they will go along with what China wants. Uh, whether it works is another question. You know, the, the things that made the China model work in China on the economic side had particular characteristics that probably don't apply in most parts of the developing world. China had this very large supply of reasonably well-educated, low-cost labor, and that doesn't exist in many parts of the developing world. It also had an enormous influx of capital and technology that came from the West. Maybe China can provide some of that, but we'll see. On the political side, uh, the stability that the CCP has been able to attain, of course, has involved a tremendous amount of repression and, and brutality. And that may appeal to some leaders in the developing world, but it almost certainly won't appeal to all ordinary people in many in many countries in the developing world. But they've, they've uh, made significant advances there, in part, I think, because people in the United States and in the West uh, haven't been paying enough attention to, to those parts of the world. We've, we've been focused elsewhere, or we've cared about them only when we saw a strategic challenge there, whether it was the Soviet Union, as you mentioned, or the threat of terrorism after 9-11. And then we've tended to turn our attention away. 
And the Chinese have taken advantage of that. They see a vacuum and they're trying to move into it. So Aaron, let's say your arguments uh, are right in getting China wrong. What should the West do? I mean, Biden said publicly that if China attacked Taiwan, the U.S. would respond militarily, whatever that means. What would you want Biden to do, which he currently isn't doing? And what should the West broadly do in terms of dealing with Xi's China that they're not currently doing? I think if we stand back from it, stand back from the details and ask, well, what exactly is the objective of our strategy? If the objective of our strategy starting at the end of the Cold War down more or less to the present was to transform China and draw it into our international system, that's pretty clearly failed. So what is going to be the goal? Uh, I think in the first instance, our, our objectives have to be defensive. We have to block uh, some of the initiatives that the, China, the Chinese have underway, and we have to do things to deter them from using force or threats of force to further- But Biden's doing that. I mean, what, what is Biden not doing that he should be doing? Well, I don't think he's doing enough of it. Uh, if you ask what so is he, he needs doing, to be what, simply stronger in terms of China, more well, focused it, it, on the China threat. It's it's not just strength. There are some other things that that are required. But let's just take strength, military power. Um, I would have hoped that after the invasion of, of Ukraine, the administration would have taken the opportunity to go to Congress and ask for significant increases in defense spending, because I think those are going to be required if we're going to continue to play a major role in Europe. We're not going to be able to pull out anytime soon. And we also need to do more in Asia and in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, we're not going to do it with the current budget. And in fact, in real terms, given inflation, defense spending has gone down. Uh, and so that, I think, is, is dangerous. It's especially dangerous if at the same time that we're not spending enough on defense, we're also talking in a pretty aggressive way about what we would do in various contingencies, including, including over Taiwan. But it isn't just military. I think we're going to have to rethink and restructure our overall economic relationship with China. Uh, well, what well. does that mean? Would that mean, for example, that we should actively discourage Apple, for example, from having factories in China? Here, I think um, the administration has, and to some extent, the Trump administration was moving this way. And I think the Biden administration is sort of uh, maybe slowly, haphazardly moving in this direction. Uh, it's not a question of sort of decoupling and, and separating the two economies. I don't think that's, that's possible. But there are things that need to be changed, and some of this has started to happen. So, for example, there are now tighter, there's now tighter oversight and scrutiny of Chinese companies that come to the United States and want to buy American companies and get access to the technology they've developed. There are now tighter restrictions on the ability of American companies to export certain technologies to China. Uh, and that, I think, is necessary as well. Uh, there's beginning to be discussion in Congress of some oversight of capital flows and investments to China. Some not trivial amounts of money are flowing from the United States into companies that build weapons for, for the PRC military. Uh, that that doesn't make a lot of sense. So I think we're going to have to restructure parts of the relationship in fairly significant ways. And that's going to take time and it's going to be costly and there's going to be resistance to it because there are always 
people and industries and sectors who benefit from the status quo, even if the status quo is increasingly damaging and, and dangerous to the country as a whole, as I think it is. All right. It's an important, it's a really important conversation that Aaron is centrally involved in getting China wrong. I think he presents his case, which not everyone will be happy with, or certainly will agree with, I think in a very coherent and responsible way. It's certainly not a conversation, Aaron, that's going away soon. It's probably the dominant conversation of the 21st century. So I'd love to have you back on the show, talk more, maybe with some people who don't agree with you. What else, uh, in addition, uh, well, you, you do need to read uh, Fred's book, uh, and people need to read both your book and Fred's book together. What else are you reading these days, um, Aaron? Well, uh, I've recently read a very good book by a young man named Rush Doshi, uh, who actually was a student at Princeton, who worked for me as a research assistant, and is now a high-ranking official in the National Security Council. And it presents a very cogent and detailed description of the evolution of China's grand strategy. So I, I would certainly recommend that. 